folks, and welcome to another edition of Variable Depostulate Ensemble Projects. This is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drawstuff, and I'll be acting as your host, and as always. Uh, today's show is kind of long, so I'm going to get the uh, uh, credits out of the way pretty quickly. As a trumpeter, as always, I endorse Wedge Mouthpieces made by Dave Harrison up in uh, British Columbia on Gabriola Island. Just go to WedgeMouthpiece.com to find out more information. I also play all Getson trumpets. Uh, so you can go to Getson.com or just contact your local music store uh, to find out more information about Getson trumpets. They're really amazing and they're all American made. All right, I want to get to the show as quickly as possible today. It's a little longer. Uh, today, my guest is John Dorhauer, composer, trumpeter, arranger, and educator. Uh, he and I have gotten to know each other through the Shout Section Big Band over the past nine years or so. And John has a lot to offer, and please listen to this entire show. Uh, we don't get to the music until about a half hour in, but it's worth it. There's a great deal of information, a lot of great out-of-the-box ideas about survival in the 21st century and how to promote your music. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Folks, uh, I'm online here speaking to trumpeter, composer, arranger, and educator, John Dorhauer. John, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you. How about yourself? Oh, I can't complain. I'm really glad you're able to do this today. Thank um, you for having me. I, I, um, going to kind of let you tell your own story on a lot of this. I mean, I have written a blog about your music and folks go read that if they like, but this is going to take it a lot farther. So, um, you know, kind of some general questions first. Uh, when did you decide to make music your life's work? How was this something that you knew? How'd you know this is something you wanted to do? I think I first knew that this was something I was going to at least be passionate about my whole life when I was in seventh grade, when I wrote my first piece of music. Um, it was a, a dopey little car concert march that I did for my uh, just my seventh grade band. Um, but I literally remember waking up in the middle of the night and like having this idea for a melody. And then I like like kind of scratched something down. It was like so cliche for like what you would expect a composer to do. But like I, I knew at that point <laughs> that this was something, not necessarily that I was going to make my living on, but that was going to be a, a an integral part of my life from then on. Um, and then as I went through high school, I started um, kind of forming plans for doing something with teaching and music. Okay. Um, and I was lucky to have several top-notch band directors and choir directors and, and music theory instructors where I went to high school, and, and they really kind of inspired me to want to continue to do that, uh, not only study music myself, but uh, help others along their musical paths. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, so, and then like, from there, just continued to, to write and, and play and, and so like I, I don't know there's one definite key inflection point but the like the, the I, I had i was very lucky to have the upbringing that i did yeah yeah um this trumpet always been your first instrument did you start off with something like piano or was trumpet the first thing you played piano was the first instrument that i had formal training on um although i didn't continue piano lessons through like middle school or high school okay um and so trumpets continues to be my primary instrument, but piano was the, the first one I had any kind of formal experience on. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, in poking around your music online, I've I've stumbled across you doing a lot of wild and woolly things besides just your your big band and your education. I mean, I've seen you in the lobster suit. Did I do I remember that correctly? Uh, that's correct. <laughs> you played so. In other words, did you get your start playing in indie rock bands or or big bands? How would you, what would you say was the way your career actually started professionally? Uh, I think professionally, it probably started after I finished undergrad. Um, when Which I started was where? Playing. I did my undergrad at Elmhurst College. Okay. And then shortly thereafter, I joined a group uh, that we, the two of us, continue to play in to this day. That's Shout Section Big Band. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And started playing with that group, I think, literally a month after I had graduated. Uh, and that was my first experience playing regularly in a professional type ensemble as opposed to something that you plan at school, you know, okay. what, uh, what, I, what, I, go ahead. Okay, I, I was just saying I had experience that I wouldn't necessarily categorize as professional before that. Like it, when I was in high school, I had a garage rock band, um, and had fun playing guitar and that, but the, you know, it was just a group of friends having fun together rather You're still, than like professional you, obligation. Do you still play in these indie rock bands, uh, the Lobster Band, for example? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I, I play trumpet in a few different rock bands, yeah. uh, in, including the uh, the Lobster Band. Yeah, well, the, tell, uh, me, tell me about that. I can't remember what that was all about. Yeah, so that group's called Band Called Catch. Okay. Uh, and it's led by a man by the name of Tim Frank, who uh, a couple years ago founded and ran a festival that was hosted on Navy pier called the great American lobster fest. Ah, okay. And so that band would typically play for that festival. And then me and the other horn players would march up and down Navy pier, uh, trying to bring folks down to the end of the pier where the festival was. And occasionally we would don a lobster suit <laughs> if we were feeling humble enough. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, I'm laughing, but I've had to wear uh, pantyhose and and you know all kinds of weird stuff for doing a uh, you know trumpet herald thing. So I'm not I, I cannot throw stones in that regard. But yeah, such is the nature of being in the music business that sometimes we're asked to do things that are how should we put it strange. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so it sounds like a, a kind of a, a varied beginning. Uh, to your career, uh, did you? Uh, what did you study at Elmhurst? Was it a performance or composition? I, I did a double major in music education and theory comp. Oh, okay, okay. Now, did you get your master's degree? I did. I did that at Roosevelt University, ah. and I did that in music composition. That's where I got my master's degree. So that's kind of yes. Of course, it's back in the dark ages, but yeah, I'll <laughs> take it any way I can get it. Um, uh, you know, I just quick comment for our listeners. A, we're doing this via Skype, so now and then I'll, I'm I'm talking over John here, but uh, you know, you're being very patient with me. What would you consider your first love to be? Uh, playing trumpet, playing jazz trumpet, because I know you as a jazz trumpet player, or uh, writing and composing, um, or do you just consider them equals in your mind's mind's eye? I think my first love was playing trumpet. Okay. Um, especially my first few years picking up the instrument, I would practice quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and it's just because I love 
playing it. Like I, I love yeah. just looking for our essential elements book and finding melodies that I hadn't played before. And it was just this completely uncharted waters for me. Uh, I, I just love the, the adventure of it. Um, but it, it didn't take too long for me to get the writing bug in addition to that. Um, and I think once I did start writing, I kind of knew that that was my main passion. Like I still love playing the trumpet and still am very active in doing so. Yeah, uh, yeah. But writing and composition has, for most of my musical journey, uh, been what I what I've been most passionate about. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I I really enjoy your jazz playing, and I I have a a, a question for you. It just it's kind of popped in my head as you're talking here. You know, Frank Zappa once said when he came, you know, he used to put people down for improvising. And playing uh, stock licks and lines and and uh, patterns and things of that nature, and, uh, and I think his expression was he has a certain amount of time and he's going to decorate it with some sounds, and uh, he has other than that he has no plan when he's going to play whatever comes out comes out. Hmm. How do you think about it when you go to improvise? Do you, do you do you have a plan uh, when you go into play, or is it kind of uh, Zappa like, you know, you, you know, you got, you know, 24 bars and whatever happens, happens. It's probably somewhere in the middle of that okay. spectrum where I try not to be too confining with my ideas, but also try to have some foundation and frame of reference. Um, so, I mean, assuming there are changes, I'm reading the changes and thinking about yeah. both the vertical harmonic construction and also the linear uh, modal framework as well and trying to fit play ideas that for the most part conform to those. Um, but I, I think one specific thing that I feel I prioritize perhaps more than other jazz improvisers is I try to think uh, rhythmically. Okay. Or, yeah. Uh, and, and try to think of, Yes, playing changes, but also doing in a doing so in a way where like I'm developing rhythmic motives and ideas. Okay, uh, that's interesting. You're you're talking about the Frank Zappa quote. It also kind of reminds me of one that I'd heard from Paul Simon, where somebody was asking him about his songwriting process, and he said that a lot of his songs uh, he starts with rhythm. Like before he has any idea of chords or even melodies, like he has an idea for a rhythmic vamp or perhaps even just like the rhythmic flow of a melody. Like maybe he has lyrics in mind and he has an idea of cadence and delivery with that. And I, I thought that was kind of revolutionary for me. I'd never really thought of starting from rhythm to build ideas. It always seemed like that was something that was an extension of harmony or melody and I think ever since I learned that, I tried thinking of organizing ideas a little bit more rhythmically. That actually kind of reminds me of something Alan Swain once said to me. Uh, that um, you know, he said, even if you play a wrong note, if it's if it's put in the right place rhythmically, you can make it work. You know, it's sort of like the old adage: you're never more than a half step away from a note that fits. Sure. Uh, but part of that is what fits rhythmically. I have very interesting, very interesting thinking along those lines. Um, what would you say would be your influences? Let's first start with this. Uh, who would you say were your influences as a trumpet player, a trumpet improviser? I mean, a lot of the, the classics. Like when I was in college, 
I did a lot of transcriptions of Miles and Chet Baker okay. um, and Clifford Brown. Um, but it, as far as trying to make my ideas um, a little bit more unique, I, I, I get a fair amount from Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw, and I think their approach to especially harmonic vocabulary okay. is very interesting. Um, I'm a big fan of Ingrid Jensen. Oh, yeah. And her playing yeah. her sound in particular. Yeah, she's really an interesting player to listen to. Great yeah. sound. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the next thing is your influences as a composer. Uh, because I have to admit, playing your charts, they are really interesting. And uh, I'm intrigued by what you think, or who drove you to think the way you do as a composer and arranger, because I guess your arranging is just an extension of composition. Yeah. Uh I think my a lot of my strongest influences, and I think this is intentional in some ways, but come from a variety and a fairly diverse uh, background. Yeah. Where um, even like if I'm writing something for a jazz big band, I try not to borrow influence exclusively from that idiom. Uh-huh. Within jazz, probably my biggest. Um, Current influence is Darcy James Argue, who leads a, a large jazz ensemble out of New York that plays all his original music. And I feel okay. like he has a really interesting blend of jazz with classical and rock styles that I try to emulate. Um, his approach to form, I think, is really inventive, especially within the jazz big band idiom. Um, so, and so a lot of my big band writing kind of stems from my influence from his writing. Say his name again, because I have to admit, I'm not familiar with this gentleman. Sure. Uh, Darcy James Argue, three okay. names, and okay. Argue spelled like the verb argue. Uh, and his band's called Secret Society. Darcy James Argue's Secret okay. Society. But like, if you look up his name, you'll you'll find his music. I'll find it. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting, when I played your chart, you wrote a chart for um, Child Sexton. Uh, big band, uh, who you know, and the South Texan big band was featured in one of these shows uh, a bunch or so ago. Um, and it's that thing on American Patrol, yeah. Um, I'm <laughs> which is, I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by. I hear a little, I think it's Charles Ives in there. I mean, there are things yeah. that are just overlapping like crazy. Am I wrong on that? No, you're absolutely correct. Um, and that gets to some of my more classical influence where I tend to be very influenced by postmodern thought and, and music aesthetics. Um, and child Charles eyes, I think is a, a composer that a lot of postmodern composers kind of point towards as an influence, uh, where Ives's music predates postmodernism, which kind of, um, uh, came about in like the 1960s, basically. Okay. Um, so Ives being a, early 20th century composer was uh, very much, I think, ahead of his time with some of those things. But his approach to uh, juxtaposition in music, where you have two distinct sound worlds and ideas that are uh, conflicting against each other in the same time and space. Um, And that's something that I I pull a lot from, particularly in that American Patrol arrangement. Um, That arrangement, uh, just for, for listeners that don't know, it takes yeah. a standard uh, arrangement of American Patrol, but then very quickly kind of like turns it on its head and goes into these kind of bizarre quotations of other patriotic themed songs. <laughs> so like it goes the 1812 Overture 
and then there's a section with national anthems, and then <laughs> that part really just gets me every time we play it. I mean, yeah. I love watching, watch, love watching people dancing to it, looking like what this, what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I, and I love particularly when we play it for an audience that I know has never heard it before, and just seeing like the reactions on their faces <laughs> as they go through it, and it's kind of like starting from a point of recognition. And then morphing to dear God, what is this? And then by the end, just kind of like, oh, okay, why not? But that's part of the fun. Yeah, definitely for me as a you know somebody playing the parts, it's, it's a lot of fun just kind of seeing that interaction going on. All right, so a little Isian background there. Um, okay, I want to interject a thought here for our listeners because once once again, John, one of the things that I, I do hope to accomplish here is uh, that. Some of the listeners may be newer musicians, somebody may be in college or fresh out of college, or this could be somebody making a decision to go into music full time as opposed to this, you know, horsing around at night. And so, um, you know, I'm looking for you know, these discussions to bring out ideas about what it's like to survive in the 21st century as a musician. So I'm talking to lots of people. I'm talking to Baby boomers, my guest last week, Jim Manley out of St. Louis, is a baby boomer, like I am. Uh, all the way back to Elena Grijalva, back uh, uh, early on in the show last year, uh, who um, uh, is a, a millennial and a woman, and a, a POC, as she kept referring to herself, a person of color. So I'm uh, trying to get all kinds of ideas, because I, I think personally that whenever people are you know trying to work out what they're going to do, you kind of have to... Figure it out for yourself, but you have to get some input, you know. So just kind of get some context here. Where would you consider yourself to be in, in the chronological spectrum, as it were? I'm a baby boomer, and you would be a fill-in-the-blank. I Well, I'm 34, and so I honestly, I'm not sure exactly where I fall. I don't think I'm millennial. I don't know if I'm Gen X. Or I might be Gen Y. I, I honestly, I don't know. But I'm <laughs> Somewhere 34. in between. Okay, well, yeah. that, gives some, that gives some perspective. Um, I'm middle-age-ish white. <laughs> Middle-age? Uh, okay, all right. I'll wait, I'll wait to get there, then we'll talk back. Then we'll talk okay. again. <laughs> Maybe because that was a while ago for me. Um, all right, so that gives perspective to our listeners as to where you're coming from. Um, so let's kind of talk a little bit of nuts and bolts about survival. Um, so... Uh, how do you go about promoting yourself as a player to get gigs? Uh, uh, and, and how do you go about promoting your music as a composer to get jobs? I mean, how do you go about the business of getting work as it were? I think the most important thing that I've realized is that uh, I try to think of myself as both a performer and a composer, and I use both to get opportunities for the other and i feel like the fact that i do both uh is doubly beneficial for both of them if that makes sense we're like i will get gigs as a trumpet player which will then lead to gigs as a composer ah, and vice okay. versa okay um, and so i think generally like it, it doesn't have to be trumpet and writing but I, I think if you can do multiple things well as a freelance okay. musician then it's not only enjoyable to do both of those things, but that can work to your advantage where you get gigs from one realm that help towards the other. Do you feel you get more work from word of mouth from talking to people face to face or online 
through uh, social media and websites? Um, I think it's probably both, but I, I think it's generally more effective if there is a personal uh, connection to be had. Um, so, like, for example, as a trumpet player, I'm mostly just getting gigs through people that I already know. Okay. And in, in fact, we were talking about the shout section group. Basically, every performing professional uh, commitment I have stems back to that group where ah, okay. uh, I started playing in that group. I literally responded to a Craigslist posting that they had ah, I'll be <laughs> and, and, and joined them that way. But then I met a couple other people in that band that then led to other opportunities, specifically the drummer at the time, a man by the name of Brian Baxter, uh, kind of keyed me in the, the direction of checking out Roosevelt for their master's in composition. And then I applied for that and obviously the rest is history there. And then there was a saxophone player who led his own rock group uh, called the Black Umbrella Brigade that was, was this kind of weird Oingo Boingo-esque combination cool. of like rock, but also humor um, and just like a lot of things rolled up into one and then ended up meeting a few other people through that. And so like it, it ended up kind of over the years being this very densely interwoven web of connections, but all of it came from this this one big band that I just happened to see on Craigslist after yeah. I graduated. Um, and I, I think that's another thing that I, I tell my young students and would advocate to your listeners is that especially when you're developing, try to say no as little as possible because uh -huh. you never know what opportunities are going to come from where. Okay. Yeah. That's, that is really interesting. Um, all right. Let me uh, kind of get back you know, stick with the nuts and bolts here. Then I want to get some specific things about your work. Sure. Um, for, um, yeah, you mentioned that you teach and you, and you have students. Oh, first of all, where do you teach? Where you, where's your primary teaching uh, site? I teach adjunct at Elmhurst College. So where I okay. did my undergrad, I'm now there teaching music theory and composition. Uh, and then I teach private trumpet lessons out of the Glenbard School Districts. So okay. Glenbard East and um, one of the other ones and the, the surrounding feeder schools as well. Um, and then a couple other small things here and there, but those are my primary teaching commitments. Okay. Now, where the, uh, when you work with these students and you're telling them about, you know, the business and such, uh, what would you say would be the necessary survival skills that you would want to incul inculcate into their uh, experience? I think that you, especially if you're doing this as a freelance uh, position, um, solid communication communication skills are absolutely necessary and i think that yeah. involves a few things one i think it means um checking your email regularly and responding <laughs> uh within a day uh and preferably sooner um but also having strong written communication skills so so knowing how to write and speak um having good good grammar and, and spelling uh, and just uh, <laughs> coming off as professional as you can. Okay. Uh, would you would you include or are there any things that come to mind about playing skills that might you might deem as a necessity for survival that you'd want to encourage with your newer players? Yeah, I think especially as you're developing, it's really important to have good reading skills. 
Okay. And I think one of the benefits for me uh, going to Elmhurst College is as a member of the jazz band there, uh, that group does a lot of reading. So they okay. do jobbing gigs most weekends, and then there's a, a book of 200 charts that they have for that. But then for their, uh, I guess, like concert jazz stuff, they, they do usually at least four or five unique performances throughout the year. Uh, there's the College Jazz Festival that's coming up here next week that they always prepare, prepare for, and they usually do at least two, if not three, separate shows for that. And so as a member of that group, I read hundreds of different charts, and so that really kind of honed my reading skills. Um, and when you're playing with a band for the first time, I think one of the important gauges as to whether you're going to get called back or not is whether you can uh, tread water as a reader. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, and you can read the charts at least effectively. Um, I think it's important to be able to listen uh, and play within an ensemble context. So for balance and blending, but also listening to have an idea of what is happening musically and having an understanding of what your specific part is doing, like what function your part has. Uh -huh, I think uh -huh. vital. Um, and being able to listen for intonation as well. Um and so like developing those listening skills, I, I think is super important. And, and for me as a composer, those listening skills are absolutely vital. So I, I think that's a skill set that has uh, prepared me both as a performer and as a composer. Now, one of the things back when I was your age, um, we, uh, when I go out and play jobbing dates and things of that nature, most of the time, and I would see, seriously emphasize the concept of most of the time you show up and there was no music. And you had to, uh, you had to fake your brains out. And one of the things that I was told not to do uh, by a couple of very uh, uh, serious mentors, you know, great players and guys who were supporting my effort to get in, they said never show up with a fake book. If you show up with a fake book, it's a, it's a, the the uh, more how should we put this seasoned players you were working with would regard that is a sign of weakness and you would be likely to not get called back. So you had to learn hundreds of tunes. I, I think I know over 200 tunes in my head that I can pretty much play in any key. And that's mm -hmm. just, I had to do that. Is that something that is still necessary today or is, is a fake book thing a little less of a stigma these days? Yeah, you know, honestly, I'm not sure uh, because with the performance stuff that I do, like I, I don't typically get called to do like a small group gig like that where I would need to know tunes. So I personally don't know, certainly not 200 tunes uh -huh. uh, and like depending on how long it's been since I've looked at a tune. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It's going to be significantly less than that. Um, but I, I know like if you're going out into like into jam sessions, then I, I think there is still an expectation that you'll, know a certain number of tunes so I, I think that probably is still a part of the industry i it's probably not as um strong or it's probably not as important as it has been in years past but honestly i'm not the best source on that okay hey, hey all ideas are important here um okay uh, i want to talk about your music now um uh, you've, uh, you you lead a band known as the Heisenberg Uncertainty Players. Uh, <laughs> could you give us a brief history of the name of the band? 
Yeah, uh, it's a pretty simple one. It's a Breaking Bad reference, <laughs> and honestly, not much more. So, as someone uh, like yourself that's well versed in physics, uh, it unfortunately is not really a, a callback to the the physics concept. Yeah. Uh, when when the band started in 2011, the show was very early on. I think it was somewhere in the second or third season, and so it was a a critical darling, but not nearly the cultural phenomenon that it would become. So the the name was a bit more subversive at the time, <laughs> but honestly, it's nothing more than that. Yeah, I never thought of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle as being a subversive concept, but yeah, you know, hey, that's cool. <laughs> um, all right, so that's the name of the band, the Heisenberg Uncertainty Players, or HUP for short. Yes. and I, I believe the website is huplayers.com. That's correct, and that's our Facebook. Twitter, Instagram handle. Okay. Cool. Make a note, everybody. Uh, yes. HUplayers.com. Um, now, uh, you've got several CDs out. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, so uh, Heisenberg recorded a CD back in 2013, um, and I still have like a handful of copies available, but that one's not – like you won't find it on Spotify Okay. Uh, or anything like that. And then in 2017, we recorded a live album called We Tear Down Our Coliseums, which is okay. the name of the piece that we performed. And that's a nine movement suite uh, in which each movement is written as an homage to a baseball stadium that had been destroyed. Okay. Wow. And so that kind of has a lot more of my classical influence rolled into it like a lot of the darcy james argue approach to big okay. band writing okay. and we premiered that at elmhurst college in 2017 and then used the live recording of that um and that's on our Bandcamp page and i think you can find recordings of it on our website as okay. well um and then this past year we recorded an album that's going to be released uh this upcoming may the album's called gradient and it okay. features nine original compositions and one arrangement um, of a movement of a Mahler symphony. Okay. Oh, that's the stuff that you sent to me, these tracks that I just received. Yes, those are from the album that's coming out in a few months. Okay. Ah, excellent. We'll circle back to that in a second. Um, well, I, I've subbed on the band a couple of times, and one of the yeah. concerts we did was out at the uh, now-defunct Pheasant Run. Um <laughs> What we were doing a bunch of Beatles tunes there, weren't we? Yes. So we've done a couple of themed shows where we play an entire album, but my original arrangements of the music. So the first one that we did was the Beatles Abbey Road album. Yeah, yeah. And so we did. We premiered that a couple of years ago, and then played it uh, last year to celebrate the album's 50th anniversary or the 50th anniversary of its release. And what we do is, like, cover to cover, we play every song, but original arrangements of it. Uh, we also did a similar project, but with Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy album, which we did this past November at Fulton Street Collective for their Jazz Record Art Collective series. Is that where the um, crunch came from? Is that the where that arrangement came from? Yes, yeah, that song's from that album. That, that arrangement's actually fairly old. I think I did that in 2013, before I had the concept of doing the whole album. Ah, okay. uh, but it, yeah, like you said, it's this kind of asymmetrical uh, funk tune that's got such an infectious groove, 
but one that's written mostly in nine eight. Yeah, very very odd. <laughs> really hard to play, but like once you get the groove locked in, it just feels so great. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. Uh, now, are those albums, the Abbey Road and the uh, the Led Zeppelin, are those things recorded on CDs anywhere, or is that or are those just live performances? Yeah, so we don't have any formal recordings, but uh, on YouTube you can find videos of the live performance. Just go on YouTube and search Heisenberg Uncertainty Players, and then Abbey Road or Houses of the Holy. You can access videos. Okay. Out of curiosity, I was looking at the website for help, and you've got the whole band walking across the street in the crosswalk. <laughs> yeah, where yeah. was that? I thought that wasn't actually Abbey Road, was it? No, <laughs> no. I looked into flying a seventeen-piece band across the pond to. Yeah, you're you're playing with me now, right? <laughs> um, we did that outside of Riverside Brookfield High School, which is where one of the members of the band teaches. Yeah. Yeah. We'd had some rehearsals, um, and so I had a friend that was actually playing banjo on that show that also does photography, and so he brought his camera, and they're on the, because they've got, like, those zebra stripes on the road uh-huh. outside of school, and so we all lined up and did the, the mock Abbey Road pose. Yeah, okay, kind of enjoyed that, yeah, just a little non-sequitur. Yeah. All right, let's talk, let's talk about your new music. Uh, I'm going to play a track now, uh, and this is, I think, the uh, Help me out with the pronunciation. Uh, Point Giannis? Point Giannis. Point Giannis. Okay. So tell me a little bit about that, about this track we're about to listen to. Yeah, so um, this is one of four movements from a piece called The Basketball Suite. Okay. Um, And these are the four tracks that will close our upcoming album. Uh, And I was talking about the Coliseum's piece earlier that was inspired by baseball stadiums. Uh, Uh I am a big sports fan, and so I've found ways to creatively draw inspiration from music and sports uh, as a way of kind of like trying to perhaps appeal to a wider market than just people interested in in jazz, (laughs) original jazz music. Um, And so each movement is written about a modern or a different aspect of the modern NBA, and this one is – so the title point Giannis comes from Giannis Attentacumpo who's this freakishly tall but insanely gifted athlete uh-huh. um, where like I think his coaches realized that even though he was seven feet tall, he could dribble and handle the ball like a smaller player. Uh-huh. So they kind of started this experiment where they would run possessions through him. And so the music is kind of written as an homage to his style of play where it's very graceful and eloquent, but also just a little off kilter. Um, and so like, you're going to hear a lot of different metric modulations interspersed throughout the tune and some Ah, sounds and all that's meant to emulate this particular player. Cool. All right, folks, let's give a listen to point Giannis.
John, one of the things I like to ask people when they're recording things, because this, the point, Giannis, just sounds wonderful. Uh, first Thank thing you. is, where did you record it? We recorded at Rax Track Studios, which is in Chicago. Okay. Um, now, here comes the touchy part. How did you fund that? Um, I mean, asking for a friend. Yes. <laughs> uh, how did you go about funding that? Uh, that? I think that is something that a lot of people would really be interested to know how to handle for their own work. Sure. And we were lucky to have a few different sources of funding for this, okay. the whole one project. Um, so we did launch a Kickstarter campaign to partially ah. fund the recording itself. And we were lucky enough to have that be successful. Um, and so not all of the recording costs, but a, a decent portion of that came from the campaign from that. And I, I think we were, for listeners that might be interested in doing something like that, I think one thing that really helped this particular project was we had a lot of uh, fairly creative and unique perk levels. Um, and so like we had several people at each perk. And I, I think if we had done something simpler where there were just three or four different levels, I, I probably would not have had the same level of success. So we, we used a bit of creativity. Okay. Uh, well, at, I, I hate to sound dumb. What's a perk level? So you can, it's like, when NPR has like their pledge drive and like for $15 a month, you get this tote bag. And ah, so it's like okay, okay. levels, you get different rewards. And so like every level came with a, an advanced digital copy of the album, but then some of the more creative higher level ones were um, at a certain level, I would write you your own personalized theme song. Okay. And so I write like a 30 second little jingle and the band recorded it at one of our performances. And then I, I sent the people that donated at that level, those recordings. Wow. Uh, I, I've also built up a little sidebar here, but I built up a bit of reputation as, as you might well know, as a, a baking aficionado as a band leader. <laughs> I didn't so know. Actually, we, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so we play a monthly gig at this bar called Phyllis's, uh, yeah. which is more or less a glorified rehearsal. Like we play for tips, so it doesn't really pay anything but one thing that i do to um in a way incentivize the performance but also kind of create a unique performance setting for the members of the band is i always bake some sort of uh, baked good to share with the band and it's like i try to make it something more creative than just chocolate chip cookies and so i'll come with with kind of unusual recipes um i'm not coming up with them myself but like finding uh -huh. them online and whatnot and one of the other perks for the Kickstarter was I compiled all the ones that I've made over the years into a recipe book. And so people that donated at a certain level got a digital copy of my yeah. recipe book. This, this is great stuff. I think it's really fascinating to hear that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, no baking with the uh, uh, new recipes from the uh, new uh, legal ramifications that kicked into Chicago back in the earlier part of this year, huh? <laughs> That, that'll be for the next album. <laughs> I keep them I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, of course. But I don't know. Anyway, oh, yeah. sorry. I'm, we, I'm, I'm being weird. No, that's okay. <laughs> uh, we, we did have other sources as well, just to get back to your earlier yeah. question, yeah. where um, we found out late last year that we were awarded a grant through the Illinois Ar Arts Council Agency, and that helped with a significant portion of the post-production work. Oh. Uh, for the album, so mixing and mastering, but it also allowed us to do um, sizable marketing campaign 
for when it's released. Um, and then in, in addition to that, just personal finances, just yeah, that yeah, yeah. personal capital into it as well. But I, I think it probably would not have been possible on the scale we were hoping for had we not had a diversified approach to funding the album. Yeah. So yeah. for your listeners, I, I think I would absolutely explore a variety of different funding options if you want to do a recording project because i mean it's it's not cheap especially when you have a 17 piece band and if you do it right you know you got it and make a a sizable investment and just i mean as many different sources for that income as you can yeah yeah interesting um uh, one of the things that's uh, surfaced with a couple of previous interviews of the whole diy thing but you're actually using uh, a studio and the uh uh, the difference is you're using crowdfunding and things of that nature to support mm-hmm. it. That's interesting. Uh, all right. Now, back to another track from this new project. Um, one of the things I was listening to, uh, it's a 12-minute 12, 12 piece. So I want to make sure our listeners know that when they go listen to this. And this is a, a thing from Mahler. Tell us about the, the this uh, Mahler arrangement that you've done. Yeah, so Mahler, Gustav Mahler, uh, an Austrian, German Austrian composer from the turn of the 20th century, is actually another very big influence on my writing in general. Um, I feel like his approach to melody and phrasing um, and form are things that have influenced my jazz writing. Um, And and so, like, again, I'm trying to borrow from as many idioms as possible. Uh But specifically, his third symphony, and specifically within that, the first movement is maybe my favorite composition in the Western classical tradition uh, in its entire history. Uh, When I was in grad school at Roosevelt, I took a class specifically on Mahler, and this piece was the one that I happened to have to profile for the class. And so I really kind of dug into detail on it. Um, it the original movement is about 35 to 40 minutes. Depending yeah, Mahler on- does get carried away. <laughs> yeah, th- this is kind of like uh, like the apex of like prototypical Mahler, uh-huh. late romantic German writing. Yeah. Um, and what I've tried to do is condense this very long and expansive movement into a moderately sizable version. Again, it is 12 minutes, but like that's about a third of the length of the original. Right. Um, and I like, I think early on when I was um, researching the piece and listening through it, it kind of struck me that I, I hear elements of heavy metal in okay. my writing, just like his use of low winds and strings, um, both in terms of the timbre and rhythm of them, I, I think are analogous to what heavy metal bands do. And uh-huh. so I said, well, why not just combine them? And so you're going to hear kind of like a heavy metal approach to the main portions for this Mahler movement. John, all that came through in the, uh, the Mahler download was just Mahler. So why don't you introduce this track with a title that you would want to use? Sure. So on the album, the title appears as Mahler 3, Movement 1.
there's one more track I want to talk about here, but uh, first a couple things. Uh, I want I want you to promote the heck out of your work and yourself here, John. So okay. you know, give give us websites, upcoming shows, whatever you've got. Just you know, tell us everything. Sure. So as you had mentioned, our website is huplayers.com, and that's kind of our hub for information and recordings uh, that the band does. We play a uh, well, let me start with the big show that we've got coming up. So next month on March 10th, which is a Tuesday evening, we are playing as a small group, so a six-piece version of the 17-piece okay. band at Fulton Street Collective, yeah. uh, which is 1821 West Hubbard Street in in the city. Really cool uh, place. It is, yeah, we, yeah. We've been lucky to play there a, a couple times yeah. already. They, they've got a great scene going on there. Yeah. Uh, but we are doing a new show that's called The Beatles Sides, which is B-Sides, but with Eatles, like parenthetically. Uh-huh. Uh, with the idea being that we're playing my original arrangements of lesser-known Beatles songs. Uh-huh. So we did the Abbey Road Project where we did the whole album. Now I've kind of handcrafted a playlist of nine of my favorite Beatles songs that I think the general public does not know about uh-huh. and kind of given them new settings for our, our small group. Yeah, um, that's the show will start at eight thirty with a set by the Natalie Landy Quartet, friend of the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. She's I, I featured a couple of her tracks a few weeks. Yeah, ago. yeah, yeah. Um, and and so she's got her group that she leads that's going to open up, and then we'll go on after her with our set of Beatles music. Um, and then TBD, but sometime in mid-May, we're going to be doing our album release show because uh, the new album, which is called Gradients, will be released on May twelfth. And so we'll be scheduling something around then to promote that. Okay. Um, We also have a couple of monthly performances. Um, So as a big band, we play the second Sunday of every month at Phyllis's Musical Inn, which is in Wicker Park in the city. Uh, We play the second Sunday from 7 to 9. It's a free show. We play for tips, but it's uh, a good chance to hear the band in its national environment. So we'll do a lot of (laughs) new stuff. I'll read a chart or two brand new every month. Um, And it's it's, it's a fun place. Yeah. 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 A few times I've been able to stay with you guys. I've always really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a cool gig that we did there. And then as a small group, we have a monthly gig on the first Monday of every month at this place in Andersonville called the Chicago Magic Lounge. Um, and that's a really cool new venue. It's been open for a couple years now, uh, but they do live magic. And on Mondays, they have a jazz band that comes in and plays with the magic. So we play a couple sets from 730 to 930. And while we play, they have three to four magicians that go around table to table and ah. do full magic for everybody. Are you doing that with a full big band? Uh, that's just the six piece. Ah, okay. Version. Yeah. So yeah. Our, our small group does that. Um, and that's the, again, the first Monday of every month. And if, if you've never been, it's, it's one of the most unique entertainment experiences you're going to find in the city. Yeah. So what's it called again? The, the club? It's called the Chicago magic lounge. Okay. Yeah, cool. Look it up, folks. Yeah. All right. One more track. I want oh, to keep bumping my mic here. Uh, one more track I want to you know talk about here, John. This uh, this is from your new album, I believe. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a track called Boombox. Yes. Th- yeah. This will be the first track off the album. Oh, tell us a little bit about Boombox. So this reflects uh, some of my pop 
influences, especially Latin pop. So um, I think going into this song, my goal was to try to create something that had the Miami sound machine sound world. Okay. And so it's got this nice infectious groove and a hook that goes with it. And it's just a a happy poppy song that's going to get your toes tapping. <laughs> okay, cool. Folks, here's Boombox by John Dorauer.
John, a couple of things I want to uh, just you know, kind of close with here before we finish off the show. Um, one of the things that I've really noticed about your your band, if you if folks go look at the uh, the pictures of the band and listen to it on YouTube, is that you really seem to address the concept of diversity in a very positive way. Is this something that just kind of happened because it's the way you know people, or has it been by design? Uh, I, I feel like particularly with the bands that, you know, uh, from the uh, older generation, that uh, sometimes diversity gets missed. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a little both. Um, where I assume you're talking primarily about the personnel within the band? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, when I'm booking personnel for Heisenberg, I try to find the best musicians that I can. And a yeah. lot of times it's just as simple as that. Uh -huh. um, but I also am, I try to be aware of uh, having an inclusive roster within uh -huh. the band um, because I, I feel like an overwhelming majority of band leaders are white men like myself. And I uh -huh. feel that whether it's conscious or not, when you're booking a band, you tend to book people that are similar to you and that you can relate yeah. to. And, and so yeah. I, um, it's not that I, I, I will book somebody because they're not like me, but I, I try to be as inclusive as I feel I can with it. Uh -huh. um, and so uh, my wife is one of the members of the band. She plays saxophone. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I've gotten a lot from her as far as um, – prioritizing an inclusive roster and making sure to um, include female musicians, uh, non-white musicians uh -huh, uh -huh. As, as much as possible. And again, not like I've never called somebody as a pity call saying like, Oh, I, I feel like I should like, I'm only going to call somebody to play in the band if I feel that they can do justice. Yeah. To the yeah. Um, and so now we have a few regular members of the band that are female 
um, including Natalie, we talked about earlier, yeah, who's yeah. a fabulous lead alto player. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's something where if every band member or every band leader is at least conscious of that, then that's one small step towards yeah. making performance something that is predominantly something for white men. Yeah, I get you. I get you. That's great thinking, too. I appreciate that. Well, John, we've been talking for quite a while here, and I, man, I really enjoy the the ideas that you've been sharing with everybody here. Do you have any final thoughts that pop into your head as we uh, wind this down? Um, yeah, I, I think that one thing that has allowed Heisenberg uncertainty players to become what it has to this day is just the fact that I've been able to invest as much time as I have in it. And I mean that both from the business and the writing side. Of okay. Things. Yeah. And so again, we've got this monthly gig and a few years ago I made it my goal to bring in at least one new thing every month. Wow. And so I think having set that concrete goal for myself that has allowed my productivity, productivity to increase pretty substantially yeah um but it's also kind of like forced me to um seek out new opportunities for the band now that we've got this fuller book um and and so i think for young musicians especially ones that are going into freelance um you have to be diligent about setting goals and plans for yourself and making sure that you're coming up with a strategy that will allow you to fulfill those um, and so it's, of course, it's about investing the time in it, but you have to invest time smartly um, and make sure that you're carving out consistent time within your weekly routine to work towards your goals. Um, and, and once I started doing that, that's really when things started to take off for the group and for me personally. Man, that's great stuff, John. Thanks for sharing. Well, John Dorhauer. Man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this and chatting with me today. Uh, thanks for sharing all of your ideas. And folks, get out there and check out uh, John's work online and, and the clubs in Chicago. John, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Nick. It's been an honor. Thank you for the invite. Well, folks, thanks for listening to this interview with John Dorhauer. I really thought that was a, an informative conversation. I picked up a lot of ideas. And thanks for listening to the Variable D Postulate Ensemble Projects uh, podcast. Please, if you like this show, do two things for me. A, subscribe. Just hit subscribe. You'll like these shows because they're all dedicated to supporting uh, freelance musicians uh, who are not necessarily from L.A. or New York. And uh, go back and listen to the archives. Uh, the show is now into its second year, and there are just amazing, amazing interviews uh, previous to this one. So listen to the archives and hit subscribe. Other than that, this is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drawsoff, saying don't stop the music. And until next week, peace.